Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I am George Milne, your host for this podcast. Today, we will be speaking with David Narrett about his book, Adventure and Empire, The Struggle for Mastery in the Louisiana-Florida Borderlands, 1762 to 1803. It was originally published by the University of South North Carolina Press in 2015, but a new paperback edition just came out. In Adventurism and Empire, Professor Narrett explores the international and political competition for the control of the Old Southwest. He starts at the end of the French and Indian War and follows the story until the Louisiana Purchase secured the area for the United States. The book does a superb job of illustrating the weak control exerted by Britain, France, and Spain over the Louisiana-Florida borderlands during the last half of the 18th century. It also highlights the fragile ties between Anglo-Americans in the region and the newly independent United States. In doing so, he introduces a rogues gallery of schemers and adventurers who operated just below the radar, ready to do whatever it took to further their private ends. He also ably covers the diplomatic machinations of imperial and American officials as they tried to make good their claims to the land between the Southern Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River. So, Professor Narrett, Thank you for coming aboard, taking time to talk with us today. So I'm going to ask you the first question we usually ask our guests. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a historian? Well, uh, first, thank you very much, George. I appreciate this opportunity very much and your own book on the Natchez. And I, to answer this large question about... um, how I became an historian. I have to go back to childhood. Uh, Growing up in New Jersey, I have to thank my parents for shepherding myself and my four brothers' uh, family trips uh, to Boston, Williamsburg, uh, Washington, Gettysburg, uh, places that were uh, exciting and and stirred my own interest. 
the family trips, reading, the curiosity, uh, my wanting to understand things more broadly, even as a young person, before I had the uh, adult perspective. Uh, being Jewish and coming from that background, having those roots, and having some sense of an ancient past, historic and mythic that I was tied to, as well as my grandparents who were there before me and talking about their youth in a very different world in Russia and Lithuania under the czars and the great difficulties then at the beginning of the 20th century and through years of the Russian Revolution and and World War One and immediately afterwards. Uh, so all of that brought me to history. And then I had the good fortune uh, to attend Columbia University, undergraduate, studied with some marvelous historians, taking courses from Eric Foner, Fritz Stern had as great an impact upon me as any, even though I uh, went into American slash U.S. history and not European. But when I think of Fritz Stern and his book, uh, The Politics of Cultural Despair, uh, Origins of uh, Nazism in a Cultural Sense in the European Context, uh, that had a profound impact on me, other individuals, uh, taking a course with Donald Keene in Japanese literature, broadening myself, their courses in what were called Oriental Civilization in those days, quite a few, uh, a few decades ago, uh, and then going on to graduate school at Cornell uh, for my PhD, where I studied with Michael Kamen, an exceptional, gifted individual beyond words, generous, and so giving to his students, a master historian um, who not only won the Pulitzer Prize for People of Paradox in 1972, uh, but who wrote a score of books of great depth, A Season of Youth, Mystic Chords of Memory, uh, The Four Seasons in American Culture became, from, from being an historian of the colonial period, a historian of American memory and culture in general, and his talking about tensions between liberty and authority, between individualism and community, and these paradoxes lying at the center of American life that are still with us today. Yes, this had a profound impact on me. And Michael Kamen's influence was as important as any as leading me into a life as an historian. Thank you. Um, I'd like to move on to your book. And one of the first things that struck me was the presence of the British uh, in the old Southwest after the French and Indian War. So could you tell us a little bit about how the British get involved in a region usually identified with French and Spanish colonial efforts? Well, uh, the British become involved in this region of what they will call the Floridas at a crucial time that the British Empire is expanding in power. It's during what is called in American history, 
often the French and Indian War, and more broadly, the Seven Years' War, where Great Britain is at war with France, above all in North America and the Caribbean, and Spain enters the conflict as an ally of France against Great Britain in 1762. And Britain is ready uh, for attack on Spanish possessions. And one of those is Havana in Cuba. And in 1762, in the summer, the British, uh, with Anglo-American assistance, both British troops, Anglo-American troops, mainly from the northern colonies, New York, New Jersey, and New England, uh, in addition to the British regulars, the vast navy and amphibious forces that the British would bring to bear, they besiege and take Havana in August 1762. So Britain takes Havana August 1762. This is a major triumph, and it's going to enter into the peace negotiations, where in that period, imperial powers to end a very exhaustive war would often exchange territories. And this is exactly what happened in the Treaty of Paris of 1762 that ended the Seven Years' War. The treaty was finalized in 1763, ratified then in 1763, so it's called the Treaty of Paris of 1763. The negotiations were pretty much done in 1762. And by that treaty, Britain restored Havana to Spain. Havana mattered a great deal to Spain. And it was a major port in the Indies, in the Caribbean. And in exchange for Britain restoring uh, Havana to the Spanish, the Spanish ceded all of their claims to, quote, Florida. And I say, quote, because Florida did not have clear bounds any more than Louisiana did at that time. So the Spanish cede or surrender their claims to Florida and to Britain, and Britain also gains from France all French territorial claims from the Mississippi River eastward, um, and except for New Orleans and the River's Delta. So the international situation changes because of the results of the war, British victory over France and Spain, and also France's decision to withdraw from the rest of Louisiana, uh, which it didn't cede to Britain by the peace treaty, France instead decided to transfer that, to give it away to Spain. That is New Orleans and what was west of Louisiana, because France no longer thought that portion of Louisiana was worthwhile its keeping. It was a drain on the empire. So in short, Britain gained Florida from the Spanish and also territory east of the Mississippi and a great deal of that on paper. Of course, Indian peoples live there and whether they would consent to this or how their relations would be with the imperial empires was still up in the air. But Britain now had control of a vast amount of territory or sovereignty over territory east of the Mississippi. And in 1763, 
in the same royal proclamation in which King George issued the famous proclamation line uh, that went down the crest of the Appalachian Mountains and separated colonial lands to the east to those that were reserved to Indian peoples to the west. Everyone knows about the proclamation line of 1763. Well, on that same proclamation, the king, through his advisors, created the bounds. The British mapped out the bounds of three new North American colonies that they had gained through the war. And one was Quebec from France, and the other was called East Florida, East Florida, uh, with uh, its new its capital at St. Augustine, that had been Spanish, and the other was West Florida, which the British had now, and which consisted of territories gotten from both the Spanish and French. And the British placed the capital of West Florida in Pensacola. And West Florida was considered extremely strategic by the British because it went from, or its boundaries went from the Gulf of Mexico, the Gulf Shore east of Pensacola, all the way to the Mississippi River, really hovering right over New Orleans and going the bounds of West Florida actually uh, went not only to the midstream of the Mississippi above New Orleans, but also right through Lakes Pontchartrain and Maurepas, uh, right there above uh, New Orleans. So the British Empire looked on paper more powerful than ever, and it was. Uh, but of course, how it would manage its relations with Indian peoples as well as its own colonials um, would, of course, uh, was a big question mark. No one could foresee at the time in 1763 after these great gains by Britain, that a dozen years later, Great Britain uh, would be at war with its own colonies, a situation that France and Spain were sure to exploit. Good. Um, that, that answers quite a few questions, but um, one of the, one of the uh, things that struck me also was that the British colonial government, the, particularly the, the first governor, seemed to be pursuing his own agenda rather than uh, imperial policy. And uh, that seems to be, that's a, a major point of your book. Could you talk a little bit about people working at cross purposes uh, with their erstwhile employers, in this case, the British government and, and Governor Johnson? Well, Governor Johnston, George Johnston, who was a naval officer and a captain, and he was not very high ranking in the British military uh, hierarchy, but through his connections to Lord Bute, a Scottish nobleman and a close friend of George III, he gained an appointment as the first British governor of West Florida. And he had great ambitions of developing Pensacola and the area to the Mississippi as a heart of British empire in that part of the world. He thought of, he planned colonization projects. He was ambitious in allocating resources uh, that for 
fort construction in the Mississippi River, which the British Army at the time approved, although it would later uh, cut back uh, from that area. And Johnston wanted to see Britain dominated, dominate the whole fur trade of the Mississippi Valley. And he saw also Pensacola as a place where the British would gain trade, illegal uh, as far as the Spanish laws were concerned, but going on all the time, smuggling between British merchants and the Spanish colonies, because Spain now had New Orleans, and the Spanish dominions in the Caribbean and South America were vast. So George Johnston, governor of West Florida, thought of Pensacola as an emporium for trade, where the British would exploit trade with New Orleans and the Caribbean, and where he went beyond what the British authorities uh, would legitimate or authorize uh, was in recommending a British war against the Creek Indians uh, once they had killed several British traders operating in that area in the deerskin trade. And there were all types of tensions between uh, colonial traders and Indian peoples over decades. Johnston recommended that the British assemble a vast force, including the naval arm from Jamaica and provincial and regular troops uh, to attack the Creeks. Well, that never came off uh, because uh, the British government thought the plan was madness and it wasn't going to enter into a conflict with the Creeks after the British had just expended great resources in um, <clears throat> fighting against Pontiac and the territories between the Ohio and the Great Lakes in Pontiac's war, a major Indian uprising against the British in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War. So in other words, the British government said no to George Johnston. The imperial center, not the colonial, was in charge of war-making power. And that's one of the key points that distinguishes an empire, that it is a system of military, political, economic control to some degree over its uh, colonial possessions. Even if those possessions have certain rights of self-government, they are still subordinate to and serve the interests of the mother country. And that lesson was driven home to George Johnston by the uh, king's ministers at that time. Uh, but West Florida remained a very fertile region for British and Anglo-American colonial ambitions. And... George Johnston did succeed in convincing the British government to expand the boundaries of West Florida to include the territory of Natchez, roughly 240 miles north of New Orleans. And Natchez was important because it included some of the most fertile land uh, for agriculture in the entire Mississippi Valley. And therefore, it could attract Anglo-American colonists from the Atlantic seaboard, as well as others that the British might sponsor. And Johnston 
the British governors of West Florida who succeeded him certainly wished to encourage that movement to the greatest extent possible, the colonization of the Mississippi Valley. They succeeded only to a quite limited degree before the American Revolutionary War. And that limits to which they could colonize. And there were Anglo-Americans who came from New England, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Virginia, South Carolina, and Georgia to colonize and brought slaves with them or purchased slaves for slave agriculture in the lower Mississippi Valley, in the territory between Natchez and Baton Rouge that were part of British West Florida before the American Revolutionary War. You know that we often think of 13 British colonies on the eve of the American Revolutionary War. Well, actually, in North America, there were 17 colonies. Uh, there were four of the 17 that did not enter into or join the other 13 colonies in the American Revolution. Those included Quebec, which, of course, the Americans invaded and in the fall of 1775 in winter, and Nova Scotia, and also the two Floridas, East and West Florida, which the United States wanted to gain uh, during its war with Great Britain. Uh, when the Revolutionary War, uh, after it commenced. And the United States would have grand ambitions toward uh, the Mississippi Valley and the Gulf Coast uh, during the Revolutionary War, something that isn't emphasized nearly to the extent it might be. And that's one of the key points that my book brings out, as well as the conflicts that developed once Spain entered the war against Great Britain in 1779 as an ally of France. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, José de Galvez, uh, the Spanish governor of uh, Spanish Louisiana, and his aide? Well, Bernardo, uh, Bernardo de Galvez was a very dynamic young leader who was appointed at the very end of 1775, the beginning of 1776, as the Spanish governor of Louisiana. And he obtained his post because he was the nephew of Jose de Galvez, who was the Spanish minister of the Indies. And Bernardo de Galvez had experience before the war in fighting in northern Mexico against the Apaches. And he had, therefore, military background. And he was someone who was very bold and audacious as a leader. He was about 30 years old when he became the Spanish governor of Louisiana. And during the war, there, were, there was a period of Spanish neutrality between 1776 and 1779, before Spain entered the war against Great Britain. And during this period of neutrality, Galvez aided the United States by seizing British merchant vessels on the Mississippi, accusing them of contraband, and also in 1778, welcoming to his capital an American raider 
from Philadelphia, a guerrilla leader who was authorized by Congress, so it was an authorized expedition. That man's name is James Willing, and he was the brother of a very wealthy merchant of Philadelphia who himself was connected to Robert Morris, the major war contractor and merchant behind the Revolutionary War effort. The point is that James Willing led in 1778 a small guerrilla raid down the Mississippi River to plunder the plantations of British colonists along the Mississippi, uh, especially the loyalists, although he did not inquire into the political affiliations of the colonists there, whether they were British in ancestry or Anglo-American. He looted, he plundered, he seized slaves, and then he brought the loot to New Orleans for sale for the credit of the United States. And the men in his expedition, who numbered 50 to 100 at its apex, also gained a cut. And all James Willing worked through the U.S. agent in New Orleans, a merchant by the name of Oliver Pollock, very influential, very important to the American war effort in that quarter and negotiations with Bernardo de Galvez. The fact is that Bernardo de Galvez, as governor of Louisiana, while he did not openly approve what Willing did and uh, had plausible deniability uh, to the British, that is, said he was not involved directly, in fact, he sheltered Willing, and he really aided the American war effort that way, as well as giving loans to Pollock to furnish military supplies, not only to James Willing, but Pollock also sent supplies northward to George Rogers Clark in the Illinois country. And Clark at that time was the Virginia militia officer who was attacking British posts in the Illinois country. And Pollock hoped that he would journey down the Mississippi to win that entire region for the United States. He didn't do that, but Pollock, as U.S. agent in New Orleans, worked uh, to funnel supplies and arms and resources to George Rogers Clark, in addition to assisting the American raider James Willing. So Bernardo de Galvez winked at these activities he did not want the United States to supplant Spain in the region. He wanted simply that the Americans should give the British a hard time. Actually, Galvez was clever at hiding, or not hiding, but uh, not openly revealing his true motives, which were, were, were to help the Americans enough to annoy the British, but to make sure that this region stayed Spanish and the Americans should not gain a foothold there, and that the Spanish should retain Pensacola and Mobile, which, had, which the British had since the peace treaty of 1763 that I mentioned earlier. Both Pensacola and Mobile were in British West Florida, and Galvez had his eyes on those places. And he wanted, if Spain should enter the war, 
He wanted Spain to make gains at British expense, not the Americans. And that is exactly what Galvez did in 1779 when Spain and Britain came to war. Galvez organized the militia of Louisiana as quickly as possible, which consisted mainly of French colonists. And also he gained free blacks and some slaves into his army, as well as Indians of the lower Mississippi Valley, some Choctaws and other members of small nations in the area. And with 1,300 men, he moved eastward from New Orleans. Very remarkable because he did not let a hurricane that had hit New Orleans about two weeks before his expedition halt his maneuvers. He simply went ahead. And in the midst of August and the heat of August, he brought an army of 1,300 men to the British outpost of Baton Rouge on the Mississippi River. He besieged it. The British surrendered Baton Rouge to the Spanish. They also, by the same agreement, surrendered Natchez as well. So now Spain was on the offensive unexpectedly and had taken British outposts in the lower Mississippi Valley, Baton Rouge by force, and then Natchez by British surrender. But Galvez wasn't done. There would be much, much bigger objects, prizes in view. And in 1780, uh, Galvez, with the assistance of Spanish forces from Cuba, besieged and took the fortress of Mobile, formerly French, but now British since 1763, took Mobile from the French, and then in 1780, excuse me, took Mobile from the British in 1780. That was the Spanish forces besieging the British in Mobile and the British surrendering Mobile, which gave Spain possession of that Gulf Coast port. And then in 1781, Galvez, with the assistance of the Spanish uh, in Cuba, mounted a a very large uh, naval and amphibious operation against Pensacola, even with some French assistance from the West Indies, and with seven to 8,000 men besieged the British fortress at Pensacola, the capital of British West Florida. And after a siege of several weeks, the British surrendered in May 1781. So Galvez had taken successively within a two-year period, first the British Mississippi Post, Baton Rouge and Natchez, then 1780, Mobile, still more significant. And then in 1781, Pensacola. He had, in a sense, he had, in essence, conquered the key British uh, settlements and posts in and ports in West Florida on the Gulf Coast. He had redeemed Spain from the ignominy and from the humiliation of defeat in the Seven Years' War, and he gained great glory from that. What came to be also important was that Great Britain, in making peace with the United States, 
and also signing separate peace treaties with the uh, French and Spanish at the end of the war, the British decided that East Florida was no longer worth keeping. Uh, the British decided to transfer East Florida to the Spanish. Now that the British had lost West Florida, they decided that East Florida with St. Augustine was not worth keeping. It would be difficult to defend against the Americans, and therefore they ceded it to Spain. And therefore, the whole imperial map of North America was changed through the American Revolutionary War. Not only was the United States born, unbelievably important as a successor imperial or budding empire is really a rather fragile confederation at its beginning, but potential as an empire in North America. But you also have uh, the Spanish gaining control of former British territory, the Floridas, West and East Florida. So the, through the American Revolutionary War, Britain lost the Floridas. And there were British loyalist colonists there, several thousand, who were extremely furious, upset, uh, disgusted that the mother country had ceded East Florida to Spain. Many loyalists from East Florida who are many British loyalists in East Florida had fled the fighting in South Carolina and Georgia. The whites had brought slaves with them, and they hoped the British would remain in East Florida at least. But Great Britain, the imperial government, disappointed them, and it ceded East Florida to Spain. So this aspect of Florida being part of the revolution, to me, is very important. It was part of the changing imperial balance of power that was brought about through the American Revolutionary War, which changed the history of our world. And uh, the Floridas and also the Mississippi issue are part of that. And that's one of the key points that my book brings out that previous historians uh, may not didn't have not paid as much attention to. That that brings me to another aspect of your book, and that is um, you've talked so much uh, about the diplomatic and uh, aspects, the high diplomacy, so to speak, of uh, the Louisiana-Florida borderlands. But there's quite a bit going on uh, on the ground uh, in the backwoods and in the swamps and bayous and rivers of the region that your book does an outstanding job of um, highlighting. Can you talk a little bit about the reaction of the people on the ground uh, who are uh, living this political experience in some very, very different uh, ways? Well, I think you're absolutely right. One of the key purposes of my book, and I appreciate your question, is to bring out the fact that we cannot understand the borderlands history, the re these regions that were in dispute and that no single imperial government had strong control over, and that also were the scene of uncertain bounds between Indian peoples as well as between 
various native peoples and colonials. And that's a huge part of the history too. You have to look during the Revolutionary War to the Choctaws, the Crees, the Chickasaws, the Cherokees. And in fact, during the war, the course of the war, the Creeks and Choctaws were very concerned about which European power controlled the Gulf port because that determined trade and who would supply them with trade goods, guns, munitions, cloth, metalware, in return for deerskins. And this trade had gone on for decades before with various British and French traders in the region. Now, who would control it afterwards? Well, the Creeks were strongly in favor of Britain retaining Florida if it could. And it's amazing to think that the Creeks sent several hundred warriors. Several hundred warriors fought in the British defense of Pensacola because they wanted the British to retain Pensacola. They were accustomed to British trade. They didn't think that the Spanish could supply their needs. And the Choctaws, while initially favorable to the Spanish, many of them became disillusioned with the Spanish and came to assist the British as well. So the whole position of Indian peoples was thrown into disarray, as well as colonials. And do you know that in 1776, when the Virginia and North and South Carolina militias and Georgia invaded the Cherokee territories, thinking the Cherokees were in league with the British against the United States. The Cherokees uh, were defeated and their towns decimated and that many of the survivors went all the way down uh, by, on foot to Pensacola to seek aid from the British. So it's a very involved story involving many different groups. Now let's take the British and Anglo-American settlers of Natchez, for example. They didn't want the Spanish to rule over them. Uh, they were really given to the Spanish by the British commander of Baton Rouge when he surrendered. He said, Galvez, Senor Galvez, I also surrendered the Natchez. Well, Many of the British and Anglo-American settlers in Natchez were furious. They wanted to remain under British authority. And in 1781, with the secret support of the British commander in Pensacola, these backwoods people, meaning the planters and the farmers on the ground who had land and slave holdings at stake, they rebelled against the Spanish. They took over the Spanish fort at Natchez successfully. They hoisted the British flag again. Uh, there were Chickasaws in the area that strongly favored the British over the Spanish and fought guerrilla actions against the Spanish on the Mississippi and the traders under the Spanish flag who were mostly French. So we have at the war's end, the British by treaty giving back Natchez to the Spanish because once Pensacola fell, the settlers in the interior of Natchez had no 
chance of holding out. If the British lost Pensacola, those in the interior region of the Mississippi, they could not hold out against the Spanish. They could not be resupplied. So in effect, they had to consent again to Spanish rule. And the Spanish uh, arrested several of the ringleaders of the rebellion. They tried them. Six were found guilty of treason, treason, but later pardoned. Uh, They fared better than the French rebels against the Spanish in 1768 in New Orleans, five of whom were executed uh, when the French uh, first were getting accustomed to Spanish rule in the area. They were not happy with it. Yes, so all of these um, ethnic groups, the French, the British, Anglo-Americans, the Indian peoples in the region are part of my book. I'm not looking at the history of the region from the point of view of the imperial capitals, but what's going on, as you say, on the ground. But the key point is to connect what's going on 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 the ground in the frontier borderland regions to the imperial scene, to have both working together to integrate the local, the regional, and the continental and international. That's one of the key objects of my book, one of the key goals that I hope to have fulfilled here. And I think geography is something I'm very aware of in history. And I think that historians, excuse me, historians need to pay more attention to geography. And one of my points is thinking about the linkages between maritime areas and the interior of North America. And really, those who are in the interior want access to ports. Those in the ports want connections to the interior. And this is not only the subject of imperial contestation, but between individuals and groups on the ground, whether they be colonials, private adventurers, which is the heart of my book, those who act independently or in a semi-independent manner of any governments, even though they're even though they may be officially in allegiance to them, as well as looking at the Indian peoples. Um, and really the period after the American Revolutionary War from 1783 to the Louisiana Purchase of 1803 uh, is studied in great depth in my book, and that's a period where the United States, especially before the Constitution, is very limited in its power over its far-flung territories, which it holds on paper to the Mississippi. And it has, of course, border conflicts with the Spanish. And whether the United States will gain control of the Mississippi or whether the Spanish will block U.S. navigation is a big issue. And American frontier settlers in the Western region, the Trans-Appalachian, become disenchanted with the weakness of the, are disenchanted because of the weakness of the national government, which they believe does not open the Mississippi for them, uh, for downriver commerce, uh, does not protect them sufficiently against Indian attack, uh, does not fulfill other objectives, and therefore, some of these adventurers will negotiate, that is the Anglo-American magnates, 
and leading settlers west of the west of the Appalachian will bargain with the Spanish uh, to open up their own routes to New Orleans, um, even if the United States does not gain that right as a whole. And that's where you get the secret negotiations, for example, between James Wilkinson, the former American revolutionary officer, and the Spanish governor of Louisiana in 1787. And the Spanish will open up New Orleans to Kentucky and other Western settler settlements, but not to the U.S. as a whole for trade. And that is to um, prevent the Westerners, the Western Americans, from invading Spanish territory, to buy them off with commercial privileges, also to attract them to and stir them to colonize uh, Louisiana, uh, and also possibly to encourage the American Western settlers to separate from the United States, uh, even though that the Spanish have an exaggerated idea of how uh, close they are to that objective. There is much talk of that. So the book goes into many intrigues, many schemes of real significance involving what are men who are relatively little known in American history, yet important to those who are very, whose names we know, but we don't know much below the surface, such as James Wilkinson, um, such as William Blount, the senator from Tennessee, who plots with the British once he believes the French are going to take over Louisiana from the Spanish. Uh, we hear about William Augustus Bowles, the young Marylander who was a loyalist during the war, who lived among the Creek Indians during the revolution and then develops a liaison to the Creeks. And later on after the war will challenge uh, the British merchant company that has Spanish permission to trade with the uh, Gulf Coast and the area of the Florida Atlantic. And William Augustus Bowles will invade Florida on several occasions. That is Spanish Florida. But what he's interested in is not so much attacking the Spanish, but gaining control of ports and riverways where he can bring in goods from the Bahamas and open a free trade with the Creeks uh, that is not controlled by a monopoly of another British loyalist uh, group, the company of Panton, Leslie, and their associates, uh, interestingly having roots in the Bahamas as well as East Florida before the Revolutionary War. So the history becomes complex, but in the course of the book, I make these trends clear and vivid because I believe that vivid writing and bringing the human dimensions to the forefront are essential in history and bringing that history to as broad a public as possible and not only to scholars. That is one of the key goals. And when you look at a figure like such as William Augustus Bowles, who has support among the Lower Creeks and Seminoles, 
and who un- knows their language and communicate with them. And they want an open trade for their own purposes. They don't want to behold, be beholden to one British company under Spanish authority. So that is a whole area of intrigue, conspiracy, um, cross-border adventurism. Adventurism, in my book, involves commercial endeavors across boundaries, often initiated by individual entrepreneurs or those who seek fortunes. Again, independent or seeking government uh, authority. Colonization projects. Uh, The Spanish want to colonize Louisiana so they can better control it with settlers who will pledge loyalty to Spain though they are not Spanish, though they are Anglo-American or of other ethnicities. And this is something like Mexico will later do when it invites Anglo-Americans to settle in Texas in the 1820s to gain control of an area that your people are not colonizing very much, that is the Spanish or not, invite others if they will pledge allegiance and play by the rules of the game. But of course, there were no guarantees at the time that the new settlers, the Anglo-Americans, would be loyal to Spain over the long run. And what about an adventurer like Bowles? He was also a military adventurer. So you have aspects of adventurism, of private adventurism, which go to the heart of really Anglo-American colonial experiences going back to the founding of the English colonies and even to the days of Walter Raleigh and Francis Drake and Roanoke, you have ventures of military adventurers who will form private armies or attempt to invade Spanish territories or to plant colonies adjacent to them to seek advantage. And this is in the period of the early U.S. Republic, when the Republic is weak, and it's not clear if it can stop private adventurers from invading Spanish territory, which happens on several occasions, notably in Florida, and is also on the verge of happening in Louisiana and the Mississippi Valley on a number of occasions. So these are some of the major subjects in the book. And William Augustus Bowles is just one of the amazing characters that, extraordinary characters that um, is brought out in the book. Oliver Pollock, George Morgan, James Willing, Bernardo de Galvez, as you say, other Spanish officials who understand the language of self-interest, who are men of the enlightenment who can negotiate with Anglo-Americans, even if they don't, some of them actually, the Spanish uh, high officials, some of them speak English, so they can negotiate and they understand the language of the American elites, of self-interest and how you make reciprocal, mutually reinforcing ties across national boundaries that might work to their king's advantage. And uh, they won't insist on the Protestant settlers adhering to Catholicism. They won't have public Protestant worship. That won't be allowed, but they can worship privately in their homes just as they wish. What the Spanish officials are concerned about is holding on to these territories, 
which their own nationality, uh, that is the Spanish, have not colonized sufficiently. And my book leads to the Louisiana Purchase, 1803, and sheds new perspective on that. How many in the U.S. regard the Louisiana Purchase as cementing the entire Union and diminishing the prospects of private adventurers like Bowles, like Blount, when he was a senator in league with the British, for making their own private uh, and forging conspiracies with foreign powers to take over the Mississippi Valley. And of course, everyone knows that the United States greatly feared the power of Napoleon and the French. Uh, it also was worried about its own ambitious citizens who might forge alliances with foreign powers if it served their interests. Individualism taken to an extreme, if you will. And Henry Knox, Secretary of the War, talking about the imbecility of government. Our government is too weak and there's too much of a spirit of adventure, um, of a reckless individualism in the Trans-Appalachian West. Can we control that? Well, it's not clear until the later 1790s, and especially the Louisiana Purchase, that the United States is going to predominate uh, in the Mississippi Valley. Um, and my book helps to, I think, help us understand this process. We appreciate uh, the time you've spent telling us about your book. And uh, one last question. Could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, George, I'm working on a large project, uh, ambitious to look at the Cherokees over a long period of time from 1700 roughly to the early 1800s uh, before the Trail of Tears. But to look at their relation and to look at their relations with various native peoples, because I think one of the things that's un underappreciated in Native American history, and there's been so much fantastic work done in that field in the last half century, um, last 40 years, the field is totally transformed. But the relations among the various Indian peoples themselves, their own conflict. Uh, which up to a certain point are even more important uh, than their conflicts with colonists who, who may not yet be in the interior regions. Their, uh, their relations with colonists may mainly be, the British may mainly be through trade up to a certain point before we have what's often called today in history settler colonialism moving into the regions, um, west of the Appalachians on a, a major scale. So to look at this period before settlement is on, white settlement is on a mass level, and the Cherokee relations with other native groups, such as the Creeks, um, and native groups as far away as the Iroquois, that is geographically, as well as their relations with the British Empire, with the French. Uh, later with the Spanish in the 1790s, when some of the Cherokees attempt to form an alliance with the Spanish to preserve their lands against the United States. So this idea of looking at the Cherokees' colonialism and the clash of peoples and empires, not only of empires, but 
of groups of people uh, that are of different ethnic uh, background and uh, different loyalty, uh, including native peoples who um, may oppose each other as well as native peoples, Indian peoples, as opposed to colonials. So my interest uh, there, uh, I hope, will bear fruit. Um, and we'll have a book on that large subject. And basically, I hope in the future to continue in the area of frontier borderlands history, which I've been involved in for the last 25 years, and to write more about this issue of frontier republics and areas that were independent and later integrated into the United States. And that's also a hope of mine uh, to realize, or a goal of mine to realize uh, for uh, the future in history and writing. Well, thank you again for all the time you've uh, given us. And this is George Milne for the New Books Network signing out. And listen carefully for the next podcast in New Books in History. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu visit.